James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bare tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are studied various. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. Do you know what I can do with my little finger? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole for Series 2, or for our brothers and sisters from Langley, that's Season 2, Episode Number 1. It's great to be back in the cubbyhole, and we're immensely pleased you've joined us here, too. As you're already listening, I guess you already know your way around a podcast app or website, but do remember we're available on pretty much all of them. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, among many others. So pick your favorite and do consider leaving us a podcast review. They help us expand and reach as many Bond fans as possible. We love hearing from you on social media too, so do keep in touch on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for show updates. And feel free to leave us a comment or direct message if there's any specific question you'd like us to discuss in a future episode. Alternatively, you can contact us via email, rogermorscubbyhole at gmail.com. Now, in our previous series, we examined all the official Bond films from Dr. No to Spectre, in each episode, Alan Partridge gave his comedic synopses, Phil shared his formidable car knowledge, Adam helped contextualize each film within the wider film industry, and I, well, I don't know what I did, I, I sat back, listened and enjoyed it all, as I hope you did too. If you recall, we also ended the first series by delving into the rabbit hole of the unofficial entries. Yes, they are unofficial. Sorry, never say never again, fans. And the last time you heard from us was the, the series finale in which we shared our rankings. So if you missed any of that, I won't spoil it for you. Do take a look at our back catalogue after you finish listening to this episode, of course. But this week we embark on a new mission full of new segments and some classic ones too that we hope you'll enjoy covering Bond from every conceivable angle and with some insights from some very special guests along the way. As for my co-hosts, well, the contract negotiations were protracted and difficult. James Brolin and Sam Neill came in for a test recording, but the chemistry just wasn't the same. So we've stuck with the dream team. Firstly, he's the check lender to my Jeffrey Wright. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? Yes, I'm very good. Thanks, Martin. Um, very good to be back. Um, obviously, I had the winter break, so um, looking forward to delving into some new content for this season, some new Bond um, interactions. Okay, thanks a lot, Phil. And secondly, he's the Jack Lord to my Rick Van Nutter. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? Thank you very much. I'll take Jack Lord any day of the week. Uh, I'm very good, thank you. Can I just ask, we've just had Christmas. Did you guys get loads and loads of just James Bond-related gifts from everyone? Because what I found is, weirdly, when you spend the best part of a year doing a James Bond podcast, everyone decides to get you James Bond things for Christmas. So I've had a great haul of Bond items. Yeah, in fact, I was going to share this on social media. I'm just going to try and show this to camera. So I actually have three new James Bond-based books, so you may struggle to see these. But You'll I definitely the... struggle to see them if you're listening to this. Well, yes. yeah, true. But I had the definitive history of Bond card, Cuisino Royale, the James Bond quiz book. So that will be getting used in the, in a future episode. I feel like you're at a massive advantage for the quizzes now, Phil. You can just select any of those. Yeah, does this mean we can't ever criticise your quizzes anymore? Because you can just say, well, it's not my fault. I got it from the official James Bond quiz book. So take it up with the on-producers. 
I don't think it's an official quiz book, but it's a quiz book. So we'll see how we go. It could still be quite bad. I hope it is an official quiz book. They've just got all the surviving Bond actors to sit down and write their own questions. So Pierce Brosnan's just sat there in Hawaii. What do I ask about GoldenEye? It's really weird, Adam. He just asked about his chickens. Yeah, I, I got a Bond book as well. I got The Lost Adventures of James Bond by Mark Edlitz, which is a kind of, it's a series of interviews and it digs into various bits of unmade Bond, like the sort of Dalton films that never came to pass. So that I'm looking forward to reading. And I got a limited edition bottle of Bollinger. Oh, I tell you what I also got. This was really good. Uh, my sister got me a T-shirt and it's a white T-shirt and it's got the poster of the Steven Spielberg film Jaws on it. But instead of the shark under the water, it's just Richard Keel as Jaws. And then the swimmer at the top, instead of being an Amity Island blonde, it's just Roger Moore's face on it. Well, I do like that one. I think I have to get one myself. What, who else would you like on a T-shirt from a Bond movie? Like, I'd choose some, someone really obscure that no one else knows. So only a Bond fan who passes you on the street would, uh, would know. Perhaps you could have one with just uh, Sandor's red face on it as he's sort of had the fight on the rooftop in Cairo and he's really sweating buckets. You know, just before he says, Pyramids! I was about to say, could you just have a T-shirt of Sandor and then just pyramids in block capitals below it? Or maybe you could have a Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid on a T-shirt and it's just a random shot of um, Mr. Kid looking at Mr. Wint very longingly and lovingly, but Mr. Wint just shooting a psychotic glaze back. Did I just say a psychotic glaze? That's something you'd, you'd put on a really dodgy birthday cake, isn't it? If I if I wanted a James Bond character on a T-shirt, it'd have to be Desmond Llewellyn as Q, but I think it'd have to be the one where he was sort of always looking really angry at Bond. I think random Q brancher technicians is definitely the way to go for a T-shirt range. We can have Sharon the tea lady. We can have the poor one in Octopussy who gets her cleavage zoomed in on again and again by Sir Rog. Even Bond fans wouldn't know if they saw a, a T-shirt with Sharon the tea lady. <laughs> Play it again, Sam. So, to kick off season two, we wanted to look at um, some of the iconic scenes that came from the Bond films, and obviously those ones that are quite memorable to fans throughout the franchise. So, each week, one of the team is going to pick kind of one of their favourite scenes from the whole series. This week, it's myself picking, so I thought that because we're kind of going back to the beginning, we should look at Doctor No, the very first Bond film. So I thought that um, the opening sequence, of course, where we see him in the casino was where we should start to open us. I thought we should also go back to the man himself. It's Alan. We're at a London club, so swanky it's got a French name. A posh boy with a tiny hat gets asked if he's a member, and we're all thinking, he bloody looks like one. The doorman barges past some rich old biddies looking for James Bond, who's taking Christopher's lady in red to the cleaners at Chemin de Fer. Admire your courage, miss. Trench. Sylvia Trench. I admire your luck, mister. Light the fag, cue the music. Bond. James Bond. After bankrupting her, they flirt like absolute maniacs while buggering off out the door. Looks like you're out to get me. Too bad you have to go. Just as things were getting interesting. Do you play any other games? Golf? Amongst other things. Oh, hint, hint. Tomorrow afternoon then, and maybe dinner afterwards? My number's on the card. And then she eyeballs his ass as he strolls off with her life savings. The end.
thank you, Alan and Adam. So this has to be one of my um, all-time favourite scenes. I think for a lot of Bond fans, it is a really iconic opening. And I think the tone that they set from the very start is a really, um, you know, it's a really engrossing way to do it. It's very well stylized. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I'd agree with you, Phil. I think this... Uh really opens up the uh, the character of Bond, doesn't it? Connery, of course, we've spoken about him before and uh, many people acknowledge the fact that he was, he was a bit of a, a rough diamond, wasn't it? So yeah, I think it's great that we have that scene at the beginning of the first film to really set up the uh, the character that we're going to know and love for, for many years to come. But of course, it's interesting at the time, obviously they didn't know how long this would be going on for. So so it's, it's great that we get that at the beginning. Does anyone know how to play Shemin Defer? Is it what? Uh, what's it? It's got another name, hasn't it? I was looking into this. I think it's it's got links to back. Is it Baccarat or Baccarat? It's also interesting that the casino scene kind of influences a lot of the modern Bond films. You look at films like Goldeneye or Casino Royale or Skyfall, for example, and the the way that those casino scenes are set. That for me personally, I think they owe a lot to that Doctor No opening. I mean, every element of the scene ju- is just brilliant. It's where the Bond movies begin in earnest, really, isn't it? This scene, and it's filmed in Les Ambassadeurs, which is a real Mayfair casino. It's still there today, even though it probably looks uh, very, very different. But it's a genuine uh, glimpse into the glamour and the luxury of 1962. But at the same time, there's something quite interesting going on with the people that are surrounding Bond and Trench in the club. They're quite easily the youngest people in there. Everyone else is quite a bit older. And so, again, we're on that sense of the swinging 60s and social mobility and a new group of young, fresh upstarts challenging the old order of British society. And that's absolutely who both Bond and Trench are portrayed as being. Um, But, yeah, in terms of introducing the character... It's quite mythic in a sense, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's almost the anti-Western. Bond, as a sort of action hero, doesn't ride into town, you know, the way that a Western hero might. He's already in the saloon. He's already sat gambling because he's a spy. And just the way that the cinematography and the shots capture him bit by bit, we sort of only see his hands first as he's dealing or holding the shoe. And his hands aren't doing very much at all. It's very minimalist. They're very still. And it just projects confidence. Yeah, you can kind of understand why at the beginning, before they embarked on the films, they were looking at people like Cary Grant to play the the lead character. You can certainly imagine a Cary Grant in, at that Sharon Fair table with the the cigarette looking incredibly cool. But uh, but thankfully, obviously, they uh, they went for Connery and uh, and the rest was history. But it is interesting, you know, even Connery himself kind of perhaps felt the burden of the role up, but apparently on the line Bond, James Bond, um, Connery actually fluffed his lines a couple of times because almost because he couldn't believe he was actually in this position. Yeah, and in spite of all that, it's amazing just how in the character he is. He's incredibly calm and aloof and relaxed throughout the entire scene. And when he's flirting with Trench at the end, he's actually incredibly casual in a way that sort of exudes that supreme sexual confidence that he has. And if you look at the very end shot of the scene when he walks out the door, he doesn't smile or anything and he doesn't look back at Sylvia. He just very calmly pockets all the money he's just won and strolls out the door on his mission. And uh, Gayson is brilliant in this scene because at first she isn't really playing it flirtatiously. There's a sense of her being in this theatrical duel with Bond at the Chemin de Fer table and we see all the extras around them so it looks very much like a piece of theatre and they're the audience. But almost at the moment that Bond speaks, it completely changes and she's not bothered about losing the money anymore. She's just absolutely lusting after this guy. And from there on in, it's all about the eye contact that they're sharing directly across this table. There's a sense of nostalgia with it as well. You know, that it's probably one of the most iconic moments in in cinema history. And it's 
it again it kind of it set the tone for where the the franchise was going to go in the future what do we what do we make of the character of trench though because she is sort of we don't know that much about her other than she is this sort of love interest for bond in this and from russia with love she's she's very much an embodiment of the more sexually liberated woman of the 1960s but we don't quite know where she's from. We don't know how she's got all of this money that she can just throw away at uh, Chemin de Fer. And you wonder whether she's sort of a self-made millionaire or whether she's from a wealthy family or, or that aspect of things. But it's, it's quite an interesting backstory that obviously we have so much information about Bond. And yet with um, Sylvia Trench, it's sort of, she's much more of a an intriguing character let's say yeah i think at the end of our previous series we mentioned that some characters that we might like to see in a spin-off personally i'd like to see sylvia trench as a, as a character rather than jinx johnson i think we should have sylvia trench and hawker the caddy having their own adventures together how great would that be if they were just playing golf for like the rest it would of the get your own favorite cameo role phil hawker's mine <laughs> Do you think they could do like a, you know, Mortimer and Whitehouse gone fishing where they just sort of talk about their life whilst uh, going angling in the countryside? Maybe that could be uh, Sylvia Trench and Hawker the Caddy. I wonder whether she's sort of a young sort of trophy wife of the rich Mr. Trench of Trench Industries or something. Just going forward to Casino Royale, which is the next film where we get Bond as a similarly young, fresh secret agent. And he has that very specific line about, oh, I like being with married women. It keeps things simple. Yeah, and that can lead into a new Bond film, perhaps. Max Trench, the jealous husband. The jealous husband, an industrialist who is intent on murdering his love rival. Just very briefly as well, the costuming of the scene is fantastic, isn't it? I mean, the red dress that Sylvia Trench wears, it's so colourful and bright. And of course, everything, sex and death that accompanies the colour red. Uh, but also just Bond's tuxedo is phenomenal. It's tailored by Anthony Sinclair and it oozes luxury. It's made in midnight blue silk. It's got a shawl collar, mother of pearl buttons on the shirt, uh, a bow tie with a diamond pointed shape. Uh, it's double vented, the tuxedo jacket, which wasn't the done thing at the time, but it indicates he's a man of action. Every tiny detail of the tuxedo just hints at the character if you know how to pick up on those visual clues. Yeah, you can just tell there's a real sense of class and style about it. There's, you know, it's the way that it's all set up and it's perhaps you, obviously because of the fact he doesn't necessarily come from money, he's obviously been through the upper class um, education and, and things like that. But it's just, it's just such a brilliant way to set it all up. And, and you know, and again, Connery just sort of, work runs with it so well and just and just portrays that so brilliantly it is a fantastic scene yeah and john barry's music of course gets at that as well the fact that it is a modern jazz piece just effectively undercuts the the sort of atmosphere and the very sort of soft sound of you know late night gaming that's going on in the rest of the scene thank goodness we were introduced to the bond character in the 60s i mean if it had been the 80s perhaps we'd have had uh domination for the world in the in the background of uh, they've been playing a different game which would have been a bit worse i was about to say we would have had the dulcet tones of synthesizers rather than the you know the soft jazz coming through so uh, yeah i agree i'm glad they chose the 60s it would have been interesting had because uh, originally of course eunice gason was going to play miss moneypenny and lois maxwell was going to play uh, sylvia trench it would have been very interesting to see that done the other way around because i'm not entirely sure i can see lois maxwell in this part and yet, similarly, Eunice Gason as, as Moneypenny would have been absolutely incredible, I think. I mean, it would almost have been a bit more carry-on, wouldn't it? She'd have been so saucy. Yeah, she'd have been a much more uh, Samantha Bond-style Moneypenny, wouldn't she? She would have, if VR headsets had been around in the 60s, she'd have been on there. 
You know they should have got for uh, for this part back in the day, Dame Barbara Windsor. Ooh, I play a lovely bit of golf. <laughs> a lovely looking pair. Well, you took the words right out of my mouth. Okay, so very excitingly now, we are going to present the first of our interview series. So every week, hopefully, availability permitting, we're going to be talking to uh, people who have either worked on the Bond films or who, like us, are super fans of the Bond films and have lots and lots of interesting things to say. Uh, and in this uh, first episode, we are going to be talking now to Alan Church, who is an optical effects artist and supervisor who worked on numerous Bond films, uh, but his big claim to fame was that he was Morris Binder's assistant working on the title designs uh, for the Timothy Dalton Bond films, most specifically Licence to Kill. Well, we have always been a podcast with an Alan, uh, but now we are a podcast with two Alans. A very warm welcome to you, Alan. Welcome to the Cubbyhole. Firstly, for the benefit of our listeners, could you tell us a little bit about how optical effects artists like yourself created the special effects in the pre-CGI days? The optical camera is literally in, in, in its simplest form. You can, you can go and um, Google it or whatever. It looks like a big lathe, but basically what you have is a camera, big massive camera on this massive um, metal bed, a projector. So you've got camera there, projector there, another projector there called an aerial image, and where you can actually combine loads of film elements, which is focused on that projector, and, is, and then is taken, and then this camera photographs it. So what you can do is create uh, one piece of brand new film with all the effects combined. If you had a, an animation element, you know, I did alien animation, lightning out all the aliens, face mother alien coming out the lift and over that's animation. And, and James Cameron gave, gave me, funny man, James Cameron gave me um, loads of lightning effects from the first Terminator and he said, use that. So, um, so you burn that in over the top of the um, neg element and you get another element, which is the final. And when did you first become a fan of the Bond films? I loved the Bond movies in you know, the, the 60s or 70s. First one was Doctor No and Thunderball, Double Bell I saw. But all of those in the 70s, Double Bells and First Runs, um, everything was real. You know, apart from these things, uh, whatever, you know, with the opening of the... The film, what is that? Dots going across the screen. Um, but for me, you know, after the United Artists logo, Transamerica Company comes up and that, and the lights go down, the music, um, and these dots. I thought, what the hell is it? I want to do it. You know? <laughs> I just wanted to do it. I took, you know, took my tape recorder in to record the sound as well, you know, and, and the titles, the titles were just, you know, were just mesmerizing, you know. It's it was it was it was how on earth did you get to the, the hourglass into another scene into another scene that flew it, you know, that went with John Barry? It was just um, it was mind blowing for me and my poor old gran, you know, half time I didn't really bother about Disney films, although I you know cried in Dumbo when I was a kid, apparently. But I, but I um, you know, for me, it was the the Bond movies, going to see all of them. And I saw Limit Die 33 times at the cinema. I absolutely loved it. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you did in the Bond films and also how you came to meet Maurice Binder? I did some screen inserts for Octopussy, but, uh, which was great. And um, A View to a Kill came up, so I thought we did a bit more work on that. Um, uh, people don't realise that there's some Vista Vision work in that, which is large format. 
uh, on Golden Gate Bridge and uh, the, the Eiffel Tower sequence. But then, um, um, all, uh, prior to that, I was um, also uh, involved in Never Seen Ever Again. And so I ended up doing a load of work on that as well, but, you know, um, uh, making Sean look a bit younger um, on, on the bit where he says, my name is Bond James Bond by the um, Fruit Machine. Uh, just very softening because they put too much makeup on him as well and he looked a bit rubber face you know. But um, did lots of work on that, uh, the Blofeld beard screen inserts. And there was the submarine stuff, which we inserted, which was stock footage for my stations either. It was a bit cheap, <laughs> but it was, um, you know, there were loads of things on that, but, you know, but, but to, to do Octopussy and Never Say Never was amazing. And then View to a Kill Hand. But Living Daylights then was a big thing for me. Morris, was, we were attracting Morris over from National Screen, which is virtually gone by then. And um, so I, I got to know him and uh, he, he, he used, I'd do that man, absolutely, but he was a hell taskmaster, he drained you of everything. Um, my camera room was at the, towards the back of the door and he came in his American Cadillac or something it was, and I just used him to say, Alan, Alan, right, today we're gonna do this. So I, I started to, and, 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 and then I had to drop everything else and then work for him. And if I looked as I was a bit pissed off or a bit tired, he said, God damn it, I thought you wanted a Merton Lee schmuck, you know. But he was great. So how did you and Maurice generally approach creating the title sequences? Maurice used to travel all over the world with the crew and he used to get ideas from all of that. So he started to get to know the feel of the film. But this one, there was, a, it was Mexico. He didn't go there as far as I know. And he wasn't sure if he was doing it. So the first thing he said, we need a theme. And I thought, you meant one theme. And no, he said, you need a theme, a theme, a theme. So um, we looked at some uh, rough cut of the opening, three titles, and, and we were really latching onto any little bit of thing that we could find um, that was related to the film. And we saw the, the wedding bit. Um, we saw, you know, so therefore wedding cameras, cameras. Uh, Olympus wanted a time as well. So there was a publicity campaign on that. And the gambling. Um, scenario so we did all of that and then utilized other bits and and he was forced to come up with a storyboard uh, which is literally because they were he used to shoot thousands hundreds of thousands of feet not hundreds of thousands, thousands of feet he loved technology actually he liked the strobes he liked trying to see what it was like filming off a monitor but and he, but there was there was an innocence with him on that because he didn't know the technical aspect of the bar lines coming down on, on the TV, if you're filming off the TV, and there was a real innocence, but it was good because he was a designer. So that wasn't, he just wanted to try these techniques out. Licence to Kill is a popular Bond film here in the cubbyhole. What was it like to work on the titles for that film? And did you work much with the, the models who provided Maurice's trademark iconic silhouettes in that sequence? Yeah, it was really interesting with, you know, I know Maurice before my involvement, you know, when I was a kid, I was seeing the same girl in, all the titles because she was a giveaway with her nose in silhouette um, from Live and Let Die and Man with the Golden Gun, Spy Love Me, Moonraker. And it was, I think it was, I think her name's Caroline Cheshire or something. But anyway, so, but you know, when this one, and, and they're all Playboy tie-ins as well with a lot of the girls, but this one, for example, we, we Maurice interviewed a, a few of the girls and, uh, and the one I absolutely really liked was the one at the end. She was lovely, the one holding the camera at the end, um, who was worried about having her, you know, what those photographed. 
Uh, and she and she um, said, if you want those in shot, it's going to cost you an extra two hundred pounds. <laughs> so, which was quite funny. She was she was a delightful lady. I think she was in I can't remember. She was in a, uh, a magazine or paper quite a few years ago about the, the sequence. But we also had um, um, Diane Lisu, who was in the film. And she um, was, um, I think she was dating a playboy photographer, the chief playboy photographer. So there was, there was this um, um, influence to, to have her used in the sequence. And so, um, you know, Maurice wasn't massively happy of being forced into doing things, but uh, she then became our uh, hero uh, girl in most of the sequence. We, 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 we shot her, um, well, there's also me firing the gun, which you probably know about. Um, there's, um, I'll quickly go into that. There was a point before you moved and before Danny came in, is that uh, we had an armory um, who supplied the water, PPKs and guns. But uh, Maurice, what Maurice wanted on this, he wanted a big fire, a big one. Um, he wanted smoke coming out. Um, so then we were going to put Tim in there and do all, all the business in the, in the white smoke. So um, I was, because I got small hands, um, I had to wear this black stocky neck thing, like a lady's hand. And I put my hand on, uh, like, you know, like a lady's glove. It was a lady's glove. And so they filled the barrel up and I put my hand on the tripod, blacked it all out and fired the gun. So I got 25 quid for that. There was a license to kill sung by Patty, which was a lot slower. So, so we had uh, the wind machines. We had um, hair glowing and Morris, no, go right, no, let all of that. And the noise of the wind machine. And there was this music centre well, with a cassette recorder, kept cassette player playing this slow version of Licence to Kill. Oh, Jesus Christ, no, no, all this, no, no, wind machine. The most glamorous part of a Bond film is literally the least glamorous, uh, as far as I'm concerned, because we shot it in a freezing cold warehouse in Uxbridge with wind machines, water, all of this running 120 frames a second. And, and we, what we, we create, as with all, three, all the Bond titles, even Daniel and everything, is, 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 are images that just appear so graceful, quite sexual, and really a part of the ingredients of the, of, of the titles. I understand you didn't receive Gladys Knight's theme song for the film until quite late on. Did that cause any problems for you? We were working with uh, um, Patty LaBelle's song, which was, you know, it was, it was all right. It was all right. Though there was a lot wrong with it. It was slow. Um, and um, again, it was on a Monday morning. And I'd, I'd done some optical on, on the titles. Maurice came in from Pinewood with a 35 mil can. And it's a mag track. It was a brown magnetic soundtrack. And he said, look, this is it. This is the one. And I didn't know what he was talking about. So we went upstairs and um, Ken... Uh, Sidey synced it up on the steam back with the editor and this was the moment for me more than anything is when I heard the uh, uh, the song uh, and it was you know the three plots up and everything and then I roughed and, and we created all black and white sequences at that point because it was cheaper to shoot on black and white rough opticals so it was very crude uh, effects work and things on that and it started off and I thought, God, this sounds like Goldfinger. Um, and, and, and then it builds up, builds up, builds up. And then she starts going, ah, and wow. And then hand fires the gun. Can you imagine what it was like for a fan? You know, 
Ooh, and we were so lucky because 90% of the hits for the music worked with the um, with what we did. Maurice handed you the reins, so to speak, for the the gun barrel opening of that film. How did you approach that task? I, what I made particular attention to is that the previous ones, which I wasn't involved in some of the previous ones, they just were duplicate components. So the quality suffered. And um, so, so what you see on, like, uh, Fiorazzoni in particular, if you look at that, when the barrel, where, where he fires the gun, and it's in the centre, there's grain, suddenly grain appears everywhere on a frozen frame. All the things like that. Or there's a wobble in the mat, something like that. So I went back, um, and I was fortunate to find as the closest to the original components as possible. So you look at my, you know, the, the one I did, um, and, and I'm really proud. The quality is amazing, but... I, um, you know, I did a three-frame mix introducing Tim on the right-hand side from the white. Um, the fame, the, in fact, becoming famous now. I had nightmare uh, rather than reducing Tim because he was too big in frame, or it would appear that he was too big in frame because he was walking a little bit past the, the, the circle. I kept him that size. But what I'm pleased about is you can see his face. You can see the fact that he's still moving. But I freeze him as the blood comes down and passes his, 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 you know, his body. And I went to the cutting room to see John Glenn. It was a G-block, I think it was John Grover. And um, this is where Maurice got, got a little bit angry. Um, I, um, he said, look, look, we'll play the music. Because what they were doing all the other times before that, when I was doing some very rough ones, they were using a beat to kill music. So they had uh, Michael Kamen's score come in. I thought, God, this is going to bring this orgasm time for me. My God, my God. So they, they, they'd wide it, you know, they synced it up and the gunfire worked and everything. But I, I heard the music. I thought, Jesus Christ, what the hell is this? So I heard the Michael Kamen. I thought, oh, God, would be on my one, my main one. But what I had to do then is I had to tailor it. So I did a bit of homage to Ames because it was quite, uh, you know, looking back now, when I saw it, the Prince Charles and I see it repeated, but it's one of my favourites now, that music because it really does actually mark the start of a film that's pretty raw and, 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 and reasonably violent. So this has to be very in, in like that, really in your face. So um, I then had to tailor then what the, 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 the gun barrel. So um, I didn't have enough time to remake the components, you know, because it was going like that, all of that. Um, and it, was, it, was, it, it needed to be a bit more urgent. So I had to reverse action all those components back to the center. But I also did something because it was so quick. Everything was happening so quick. And, and, and I thought, I can't let, I haven't got a reason for it to go white. So I had a little homage to Honor Majesties, really, in the earlier one, you know, and, and Thunderball, I think it is, where it doesn't go white. So I did an eight-frame fit mix, an eight-frame mix to get rid of Tim, and then that got rid of Tim, and then an eight-frame mix from the red, to the, the centre of the plane, uh, did the reveal. And I took it down once I managed to work it all out and it worked. But um, then Maurice heard about that and he went ballistic because it was his, it was his you know, design. He didn't go angry with me, but he went angry with the production. But needless to say that it worked and he was fine about it. It was a Bond fan's dream to do the gun barrel, you know, and put my mark on it. And nowadays I look at the quality of mine and I think, Jesus, it, it was worth the effort of, 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 of um, going back to the original, almost original components. I mean, you've worked with so many Bond legends, but I think this is the question that the Cubbyhole hosting team probably want to know the most, and uh, hopefully some of our listeners as well. 
what was Timothy Dalton like to work with? Um, Timothy was, um, I liked him a lot. Um, he, I got his autograph as well, which he never, never gave, you know, but I was, when we were in the pub at the Crown, because my, my boss was, uh, uh, and at lunchtime, he booked Giovanni's across the road, posh restaurant, and he said, no, I'm going with the lads to the pub, because so, he liked his pints. Tim was great. Uh, Tim was, but Tim was really interesting because because of his professional, ex-Shakespearean actor or whatever, he took things very seriously, very seriously. So you, you see how, um, and I won't go into the politics of it, but I, he's quite valid in what he said, Timothy was like, but you see how Roger works with, Maurice, which is rather tongue-in-cheek and it's a bit of fun, which is Maurice used to get really het up and I thought that's what was good with the relationship with Roger and um, and Maurice. But Tim was very, right, this is what we're going to do, is it? Right, that's it then. Once we've done that, I'm off. So, and that didn't really gel too well. So it was there was a little bit of a, a little bit frosty at times. But I, I can't fault him for being a, a very good professional on his markers. Sadly, Maurice passed away just two years after finishing Licence to Kill. Were you still close with him at the end? I went to his memorial tribute, of course, and all of that, and to the funeral at Wilsdon Cemetery, Jewish Cemetery. And um, I um, was absolutely amazed, and my partner um, was, was there at the reception at the Festival Hall. Everybody was, obviously there was a delay, I think Maurice died in 91, but there's a delay on what's happened to the new bond and whatever. And um, uh, Cubby wasn't, couldn't really stand up very well or anything, so everybody was crowded around him and I was as shy as anything. Um, and I, I said, come and talk to him. I said, no, you won't know me. Uh, so I didn't, and I stuck with my group of people. But um, there was a point when he stood up, the only time he stood up and he came over and he walked over to me. Uh, and said, um, um, hi, how are you? And I don't know what possessed me. Um, I said, you don't know me, do you? And he said, yes, I do, you're Alan. Um, and he spent some time with me, and then Barbara came over. Um, I think what you could see that I was like genuinely upset that my, you know, my, my hero had passed on. Well, thanks so much for your time, Alan. We've got one final question, kind of a two-parter. What are your favourite Bond films? And perhaps more importantly, why do you think they've endured for so long? For me, I have to go with my favourites, which is Live and Let Die, One of Majesties. Diamonds Are Forever. <laughs> People kill me for this. The Man with the Golden Gun, because it was with Live and Let Die. I loved it. I loved it. Um, and it's a lot better now than people. I think people say. Um, Nick Mack was brilliant. For me, it's it's the ingredients that make it up. They've become very raw now. Um, and, and the villains you can see in the high street up the road. You know, you wouldn't know they were. I know Sanchez was different and he was bloody good, Robert Darby, especially when you see him now. And what everybody says, it was ahead of its time. It really was. But I, 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 the ingredients for me, um, you know, that make it a Bond film. And I really hope that never gets taken away. Um, because the success of the films is, even if somebody was born, I don't know, 20, 15, 20 years ago, we'll see the new ones, the great ones, but they can relate that to the earlier ones. So the earlier ones have a history and an audience. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good night. So that was Alan Church, 
Lovely man, I thought. Lovely man. Lots of uh, interesting stories there as well. James Cameron for a new Bond film, perhaps? I don't think they can afford him, nor would I. Nor would they want to, I suspect. I was going to say, can you imagine the CGI budget alone? That would be astronomical. I think the one you'd really want in that instance is James Bond versus Terminator, isn't it? Just get Arnold Schwarzenegger in to go toe-to-toe with Daniel Craig. I'm backing Bond because Bond never dies. The Terminator seems to snuff it in every single film. Yeah, but the Terminator can regenerate. He can literally just, you know, come back. It's, it's very difficult to kill unless Bond has got a specific gadget. No, the Arnie one's quite easy to kill. It's all the other ones that he'd struggle with when they're like Molten Metal Man and um, weird Swedish supermodel woman and whoever it is in, in the other three films, which I haven't seen. We know that he'd be perfectly fine because Q would give him a gadget. Now, if you encounter an invincible robot, <laughs> use this. Well, we've got uh, the next segment is the 007 best. So in this segment, each week, we're going to discuss the seven best of any particular category in Bond. And this week, we're starting with the main villains. So uh, we've compiled our list similar to uh, the last episode of series one, where we compiled our favorite Bond films. We've done exactly the same for this. We've compiled our own list of our favorite main Bond villains, and we've come up with the 007 best. Number seven. At number seven, it is Elliot Carver, as played by Jonathan Price in Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, We all love this guy. We talked a lot about him in our Tomorrow Never Dies episode. Just the fact that back in 1997, he's incredibly prescient of the power of those tabloid newspapers, you know, run by the likes of then Robert Maxwell, Rupert Murdoch as well. Now, of course, he looks like an absolute harbinger of the fake news and misinformation age. Yeah, I agree. I think he's a fantastic um, character. Obviously, Price's portrayal is is so sort of outlandish and, and, you know, over the top, but it, it works in that setting. Uh, one of the moments I think with Carver we didn't talk about, which is amazing, is when he's giving his big speech at his media press launch and it's being intercut with Bond having a fight with the four very stocky, well-built goons. Uh, and obviously Brosnan ultimately cuts him off and then Carver has that brilliant, what, what's happening? What's happening to my cameras? You're fired! And starts just firing people at will. It is all quite Trumpian, that whole speech, isn't it? It starts out as just it's meant to be a simple press launch night of a new satellite network. He turns it into this big moment of political grandstanding. And it's almost like he's lapsed back into Juan Perón, who he played in Evita. You almost feel he's going to break into song and he's going to wheel not Terry Hatcher, but Madonna on as his trophy wife. You know, he he seems to have no patience for any of his staff. You know, even with Stamper, he's quite short with him. You know, when he's on the stealth boat, you get the feeling there won't really be an employee reward scheme with Carver's media group. It'd be a... You do what I say or you're sacked. Well, if there were awards at uh, tomorrow, then Michael G. Wilson surely would get one of them. That's that's one of my favourite parts when he's on the Zoom call. Consider him slimed. Just the creepiness of Carver as well. I mean, mean, you know, he has Paris Carver as a trophy wife, and yet you sense there is a real sort of sexual element to their relationship. And when Bond first introduces himself as a mysterious new banker, Carver is not interested in the slightest. Instead, he's completely distracted by Wei Lin, and he's thinking, oh, that guy's probably a bit of a worry, but who's this very attractive Asian reporter who's just turned up? But he also mixes it so well with that sinister nature because there's that great scene where he's with Dr. Gupta, and obviously there's the moment where Paris says, oh, so, you know, do you still sleep with a gun under your pillow? And there's just that 
there's no remorse when he literally delivers the line of, I think it's time for us to arrange an appointment for my wife with the doctor. You know, you get the sense of menace behind that. And I think it's done brilliantly. Delicious. Number six. So in sixth place, we voted for Blofeld in particular. It's You Only Live Twice and Donald Pleasance. Now, for me, he is one of the great performers of the Bond films. Um, I think Donald Pleasance brings a real sense of, again, of menace and of ruthlessness to his portrayal of Blofeld. Uh, I don't think there's uh, particularly much depth, Phil, but there's the image, isn't there? He's a, he's a symbol of a Bond villain. When people think about a Bond villain, he's one of the first that they naturally think about, uh, perhaps because of the, obviously because of the Austin Powers parody. But yeah, for me, I think he embodies everything that you want. We've got quite a lot of the uh, the megalomaniac villains on our list here, and he surely must be up there as, as one of the best. Absolutely not. Don't know why you guys have put Donald Pleasance's Blofeld on the list. I've, I've said before, I'm not a huge Blofeld fan, particularly when he's in the midst of the action and not just in the shadows. This performance is a triumph of costume and makeup and of Donald Pleasance having a handy, bold head. He's not even the best Blofeld. He's the least distinctive of all the Blofelds. Every other Blofeld gives it something a little bit different, you know, whether it's that sort of sly charisma of Telly Savalas, whether it's the campness that Charles Gray gives to it, takes the character in a completely different direction and completely anticipates Austin Powers. Yeah, I'm, I'm just never that impressed by Donald Pleasance as Blofeld. He's definitely visually iconic. But for me, that's kind of all it is, really. But do you not think it's quite a memorable um, portrayal of the character? Do you not think he's sort of, you know, it kind of resonates with Bond fans, the fact of he was, he was I guess Pleasance was trying to, to set a new blueprint with Blofeld. He was trying to do something a little bit different. Do you not think? No, I think he just benefits from being the first one whose face we see and who's a little bit more central to the action than the previous one we had him from Russia with Love and Thunderball. The one thing I do quite like is the fact that Blofeld is is super intelligent and he demonstrates this by that Holmesian deduction when uh, he's got Mr. Asato and Helga Brandt in his office and shows them the x-ray of the wall for PPK and says, now only one man we know uses this gun. And they're like, well, it can't be him, he's dead. And immediately Blofeld's like, no, rubbish, Bond is alive. He's very, you know, it's a great moment and it does get across just the super intelligence of the character. So I do really love that scene. Maybe this is something we should put out to the fans. Maybe we should sort of ask the Cubbies, do you, do you sort of think that we were, himself and Martin, were wrong to put Donald Pleasance's Blofeld in? Was it a, a mistake, perhaps? I mean... Come on, Phil, don't be so, self-defeating. So, yeah. We were completely right. <laughs> <laughs> Blofeld is an amazing villain. <laughs> Number five. Okay, and uh, in at number five, I think one that we all agree on, Max Zorin from A View to a Kill. So continuing the theme here of the rather over-the-top villain, Max Zorin and Christopher Walken's performance of the character in particular really say, I mean, it shows how bad the film is that it doesn't really save the film as a whole, but it does. It's certainly the, uh, the highlight, isn't it? An incredible villain working well with, with Grace Jones's character as well. Yeah, just uh, incredibly insane really isn't he yeah he's walking he's crazy i'm at number five i'm top five one of the best uh he's fantastic he's the first all-out psychopathic bond villain you know i mean scaramanga kind of goes there a little bit but this goes full-blown with the almost ira levin inflected nazi genetics origin myth of this character and as a character, he seems to enjoy taking on Bond, the fact that he's going head-to-head, -head, just as Scaramanga did, with Britain's best. 
you know, the scene when he's in the office of the stud farm and his computer's telling him who James Sinjin Smythe really is. He's just sat there giggling. He's like, yay, I got to take on James Bond. I'm a Bond baddie now. Yeah, for me, I think Max Zorin is superb in A View to a Kill. He's probably the uh, the leading light of the entire film. Just just the sort of maniacal, head-swiveling lunacy that, he, that Christopher Walken brings to that role. You know, I, I like to sort of draw certain comparisons to um, to Alan Rickman's portrayal of Hans Gruber in um, Die Hard, that same sense of seemingly sort of suave in, in certain elements, but just completely bonkers in their delivery of that performance. Better or worse do we think than David Bowie would have been if he had uh, taken on the role? I'm happiest in the saddle, Mr Bond. Gonna flood Silicon Valley. Certainly would have been very interesting if Bowie had taken it. Not sure he'd have made the top seven main villains, though, on this list, if he had. I must congratulate you, Mrs. Oren. Your stables are magnificent. Built in the 16th century by a duke who believed he'd be reincarnated as a horse. Have you been interested in thoroughbreds long? Oh, no, no, no. As a matter of fact, I had a rather dotty old aunt die and leave me some stables, so I thought it might be rather fun to breed and raise horses. I take it you ride... I'm happiest in the saddle. Okay, and moving swiftly on, coming in at number four on our top 007 list is Raoul Silver, as played by Javier Bardem in Skyfall. We talked at the time about this role very much being a cross between almost Hannibal Lecter and Quentin Crisp, the naked civil servant. Maybe a touch of Kenneth Williams in there as well. Um, but he's very similar to Trevelyan from Goldeneye, actually, as Silver, in terms of he is a former British Secret Service agent himself, someone who's now... Uh, spinning a web of techno terror with which he's sort of launching a revenge on the country he used to work for. Um, but he's in here more than Trevelyan, I guess for me, just because of the sheer A, camp humour he injects to the role, but B, just how frightening he is. Javier Bardem, again, born to play a Bond villain and someone who really does inject terror into his scenes through doing the smallest of ticks. Yeah, and I think when we did the review of Skyfall, I think, uh, oddly, I said that I wasn't very impressed with the opening introduction to Silver's character, and I was rightly chastised by you two. I went back to the scene, and uh, a correction from Series 1 is that uh, I think that is uh, it's just an amazing scene, isn't it? A brilliant introduction as he tells the story of the two rats. And then, of course, it's kind of cyclical. We get that callback to that at the end as well, the death scene of M. So, yeah, I think uh, Silver, just a wonderful character, brilliantly portrayed by Bardem. Yeah, I'd agree. I think the the depth of the portrayal from Bardem, you know, it's, it's a credit to him as an actor and, and his ability to be able to to mix the sort of camp silliness that we're perhaps more used to with the Roger Moore films in with a much more sinister, much more aggressive tone that, that you know, kind of crosses over between the sort of Timothy Dalton and Daniel Craig style of film. There's also an interesting element of Dorian Gray almost of a character, seeing him as a dark side of Bond, almost as a sort of older, the more embittered and the more physically scarred version. He is the ugliness to Bond's beauty in a strange sense, someone who has in his physical form taken on the scars and the pain that Bond is now starting to feel catch up with him within the course of the film. Number three. So, yes, in at number three, we have Hugo Drax. I think a brilliant portrayal from Michael Lonsdale, of course, greatly missed now. Um, but in terms of his his character development, in terms of being able to produce that sort of very sophisticated, very well-educated, almost upper-class um, villain who has also got the resources to be able to take Bond and, and indeed uh, multinational governments on as well. 
it's a very, very sort of ruthless and sinister portrayal in the same sense, obviously, when he um, uses the dogs to to attack his assistants and obviously kill her. Christopher Wood, the screenwriter, does a brilliant job here. He's improved upon what he did with Carl Stromberg, who was a little bit lost at sea, so to speak. Uh, but here, he really has created this kind of American, uh, you know, super rich character, and he has the calm arrogance of that. But he's also a sort of aspiring sophisticate. He has ambitions of being this kind of European British aristocrat cranking out his piano playing abilities and his love of afternoon tea and cucumber sandwiches, you know, calmly saying, see that some harm comes to him as he sips a little bit of tea from a very ornate cup. Uh, and, and Lonsdale plays that sense of the aloof intellectual brilliantly. And the lines of dialogue he's given are an absolute gift in Moonraker. Like everything he says kind of gets a giggle. It's, it's absolutely brilliant what he does with what he's got. Yeah, I think the language of that character is is what drew me to him as probably one of the the better Bond villains. Of course, the the villain trope of putting Bond in situations where he could easily be killed and uh, never is. Uh, I forgive the the character of uh, of Drex for that because it it makes the Moonraker experience a bit more enjoyable. I think. Because he sees himself as so cultured as well, he, he never really allows himself to lose his rag, even at the end, and he's got Bond cornered just before he's blown out into space. There's that great line, at least I get the chance to put you out of my misery, Mr. Bond. And there's just a great spoonerism of that phrase going on. Number two. Just missing out on top spot is Scaramanga from The Man with the Golden Gun. Another, interestingly, we've got another villain here where the, the film, it certainly in our opinion, is perhaps not one of the best but it does have an excellent villain in the form of Christopher Lee here playing the man with the golden gun. As we've said many times before, he's the, the dark side of the Bond character, sophisticated, charming gentleman, or at least he certainly sees himself as that. And uh, easily we could see the Bond character could have gone down that path, perhaps with a slightly different set of circumstances in his life. But it kind of feels like Christopher Lee is almost playing his interpretation of Bond in certain aspects. Um, so it's quite interesting that, um, you know, he then obviously dials up sort of the menace behind his character. So as you said, he's sort of, he's very suave, very sophisticated, very, he has a lot of class, but it's, that menace is still there sort of lurking in the background. So there is a ruthlessness there, but it's, it's sort of, he sees himself as Bond's equal. He's, he's not afraid to sort of challenge Bond. Yeah, and to kind of dovetail with what we said about Connery's physical performance in his opening scene, there's a great sense of control, of physical power and authority that Christopher Lee just exuded effortlessly. You know, the, the whole thing about that matador technique he's got going on of having sex to sharpen his aim before he takes a hit. It's a very pure exertion of that physical control. And think back to the scene when he first meets James Bond in The Man with the Golden Gun, when they're at, I, I think it's like a kickboxing match or something, and... Um, uh, Andrew Anders has been dead. Bond thinks he's meeting her, but Scaramanga's already shot her before Bond even gets there. And then Scaramanga just calmly sits down. He's in total control of all of the powers with him. He's not in the least bit threatened by Bond. He's almost amused that they've just finally come into contact and just very calmly narrates his life story growing up in this circus and having this elephant friend who he ultimately has to shoot. He's, he's just so mesmerising in that scene. And again, played with such calm authority, which mirrors what Bond normally has. But Roger Moore, of course, is, is just sat squirming in that scene because he's been robbed of all control, which he normally has. It's impossible not to enjoy a character who lives on an island by himself with Maud Adams and gets served Tabasco sauce on a, a silver platter by Nick Nick. I do wonder, who else has Nick Nick sent to kill him? 
Um, the opening sequence, of course, is at random Chicago until mob hood from uh, Diamonds Are Forever's sent and is dispatched. It'd have been funny if, like, throughout the film, we just keep cutting back uh, and there's someone else, some other hapless, bungling idiot who gets thrown in. Maybe Peter Sellers as Inspector Cluzo just turns up in, like, a cut scene and he's just staggering around the funhouse. We'll get Peter Sellers in there as Evelyn Tremble, see how well he gets on. Just all six bums from Casino Royale turn up one by one and Christopher Lee just shoots them all. Number one. And so coming to our number one favourite main villain of the Bond series, it's Oric Goldfinger. I mean, is Goldfinger just going to win all of these polls that we we do? I mean, it got crowned the best film in our uh, end of season list. Now Oric Goldfinger is the best villain. Uh, but it is very deserved. This is the first true Bondian villain, as opposed to just a Fleming villain in the films. Gert Frober and Michael Collins are dubbing the voice. They blend amazingly. He's such a bombastic and preposterous character, isn't he? Just the sheer crazy nominative determinism of a man called Goldfinger being completely obsessed by gold. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of the first pantomime villain of the Bond films in many respects. You know, he's so outrageous and so ridiculous. You know, the fact that he'd even melt down his own, his own Rolls Royce to get the gold from it so he can, you know, so he can use it for his um, criminal endeavours. And it's it's just so astonishing, some of the acts he does in this film. I love how we're introduced to the character as well with the, the card game that he's playing in the Miami hotel just a small it's obviously compared to what happens later in the film we see his true evil uh, but just even those small moments in his life we can see that he he doesn't want to lose it, it just sets it up nicely doesn't it yeah it really does get that sense of he is such a devious villain he will even do everything he needs to do to cheat this poor old guy on a beachfront at Miami and just the sheer complexity of the system he's got with like Jill Masterson on a balcony you know, in a very precise place, you know, and he's made up this story about his suntan to manoeuvre his mark into position so that she can see all the cards. Um, although, I mean, he's strange really with Goldfinger. He's very detached from all these very grisly deaths that he masterminds. And um, of course, Jill Masterson, uh, you know, he, he's leaving the room as Bond is about to be spread eagle by this laser. And later on, Solo, the gangster, of course, crushed in this car. Goldfinger's very absent from all of this. With Bond, he's not even going to watch him die. And of course, you take that famous line, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. He expects him to die. There's the great sense of entitlement of this rich, bombastic character. He, he's not leaving the room because he's doing the Bond villain mistake. He's just so catered for and powerful. He just expects it's all going to go okay. Why, why should he stay and see it? Okay, so our next section of the show is the James Bond Film Club. Now, every week uh, we're going to go and we're going to watch a, a new film, which is not a Bond film, but which is in some way related to them, either because it is inspired by the Bond films or because it stars one of the six actors who have played James Bond. Uh, and so to start off with, I was going to start with a Roger Moore film, being, of course, Roger Moore's cubbyhole. But having teased a certain film pretty much for 25 straight weeks in series one, I thought it would be disingenuous not to start this film club with Pierce Brosnan's 1988 classic, Taffin. What goes on in this town is none of your business. As long as I'm living here, it is. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! 
Well, that's easily fixed. Pierce Bronholm plays Taffin, Mark Taffin. In a film with a few of the Bond connections, Alison Doody, Jenny Flex in A View to a Kill, stars as his love interest Charlotte. And very strangely, Hans Zimmer, the greatest of uh, modern-day blockbuster film composers, co-scores it. And of course, he is actually writing the score, or has written it, for the upcoming Bond film No Time to Die. Now, Mark Taffin is a roguish and rough-handed debt collector in the small Irish town of Ballymoran, but he's quite liked by everyone locally because he sort of stands up for the ordinary people against the kind of exploiters who are looking to do one over on them. And he's also a kind of lapsed intellectual priest. He was once part of the seminary, so he's not just about the brawn. He's got brains as well, which is all well and good because in this film, he starts out saving the local sports field in the town from an unholy alliance of council and corporate grifters who are looking to build a chemical plant in, a, in the local town. And he sort of achieves this by blowing up a farmer's toilet. Essentially, yeah, the town comes to him and says, oh, you can't let these awful money people, these grifters, build this awful chemical plant. It's going to ruin the town's environment. Mark, you have to help us. Mark Taffin stands alone against them as everything escalates to a pitch of increased violence, sort of. Uh, meanwhile, there's a bit of a love story going on with Alison Doody's character. She's a drifter. She's ended up in the town. Uh, she's a sort of barmaid in the local snooker club, of course, and then later on in the local very well-attended strip club in the town, uh, which is compared by none other than Dermot Morgan, who would go on to play Father Ted. Yeah, it's that kind of film. So Taffin's a very bizarre film. It's a very oddly funny, dramatic thriller. It's kind of a Charles Bronson Death Wish-style film. Um, plumped into the world of um, the late 90s BBC drama series Bally Kiss Angel. Um, there are two posters up in Mark Taffin's flat in the film, one of High Noon, the Gary Cooper classic about the lone sheriff standing up against the outsiders of a town, and another poster of the perennially soused snooker player Alex Hurricane Higgins. And it's a film that very much bounces between these two polarities. It's a very weird contrast of plot and place. But what is great in the film is actually Pierce Brosnan. He really does have that movie star charisma that you see much later on when he takes up Bond. You know, he has these very meaningful lines like, priests don't make a difference, people do. Um, but the action in this is really worth seeing. It's absolutely hilarious. In the opening scene, he takes out an angry chef who's brandishing a meat cleaver. Uh, the climactic explosion is kind of not seen in close-up. In the foreground, there's just a man walking his dog. And then the huge explosion, you just see miles behind them at the back of some hill. There's a kind of weird car chase through the Irish woodlands. Um, and of course, there's little uh, touches of Bond villainy going on as well. The main cabal of villains have an architectural model in their office and are seen playing a round of golf. And you know that when people have architectural models in their office or are playing a round of golf, that they're definitely baddies. Well, thanks a lot, Adam, for that, uh, that synopsis and uh, evaluation of Taffin. I mean, what, the main question, I guess, well, it kind of sounds a bit like a very scaled down Bond, doesn't it? Like with really ordinary setting and uh, and storyline, and he's got to try and beat these villains. Uh, but I guess the main question is: Should Alison Doody's character have been living there? Was it was it better that she left, or uh, or did she stay? Well, I'm not going to give away uh, spoilers to the ending of the film, but that is the central question: Should she stay? Should she leave? And should he go with her? Um, it is very weird, that sort of love story. It has nothing to do with the rest of the plot at all, which, as I say, is a kind of weird Irish Western, um, you know, full of these sort of very strange Irish locals who, who really pack out the local strip club in the middle of the day. Am I right in saying, has it not gained a little bit of a cult following, Taffin? Has it not sort of had a, a renaissance? 
Yeah, just because it is such a weird mix of... It gets quite violent and characters start dying later on in the film. It sort of starts out as Father Ted and it ends up as licensed to kill. And yeah, at the centre of it, Brosnan is giving a proper movie star performance. He's just left Remington Steel properly and having missed out on the Bond role. He's clearly looking for projects which sort of enhance his leading man status. I'm not sure if it's channeled in quite the right direction in this because it is so small town and there are just random scenes of him just having a little jig in like the local pub, which is a proper spit and sawdust joint. He's tall and he's dark and like a shark. He looks for trouble. That's why the zeros double. Mr. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Moving swiftly on to our next section. So it's called Only a Theory. Um, now, if you were an avid listener of our previous series, you'll have known that um, towards our Brosnan films, I made the ill-advised suggestion that um, Christoph Waltz appears in Die Another Day. Now, this was rightly debunked um, by my colleagues um, and by our Twitter and Facebook followers. Um, and it was actually found to be um, stuntman Dave Cronley, um, who was actually performing in that film. So in honour of that, we thought we'd carry on um, the sort of unpopular theory um, idea for season two to kind of go through some of the more bonkers theories that I've kind of created over the years for the Bond franchise. So without further ado, you're about to hear the mad, bad, and occasionally dangerous world of my James Bond theories. And this week, it's the Kleb Connection. So I thought we'd look back, going back to the Connery films, at the life of Rosa Kleb. Now, what we don't tend to know about is as much of her backstory in terms of we know she has kind of a glittery military career. She's, she's come from a background, obviously she's moved into the criminal world. But also, we don't really tend to know much about Spectre's views on their recruitment process. You get the feeling that they have probably have a lot of connections with, um, you know, criminal families or, you know, criminal dynasties or, um, you know, crime gangs from around the world. And obviously, they are very well financed. They are very well organized. But at the end of the day, they need to hire from people that they trust. My theory is, though that actually Rosa Klebb's death leads another character later in the Bond franchise to actually want revenge on Bond and on his love interest of the time. And this is because actually the, the person that I'm speaking about is actually a distant relative of Rosa Klebb. So my suggestion is that Irma Bunt is actually a distant relation of Rosa Klebb and that gives her her motivation to try and execute Bond and Tracy in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. So what, how do you think, because it sort of stands up a bit, because obviously there is a thing about genealogy and heraldry running through On Her Majesty's Secret Service, and so I guess there's there could be a subliminal suggestion that there are relatives in play. How, how exactly do you think they are related, though? Well, I think, obviously, I don't think they're sisters or anything. Like that. I think that they're, they're very much sort of very distant. So they could be something like a third cousin. So it could be that they've sort of, they don't sort of interact with each other on a regular basis, but it could be that, you know, it's that type of thing where you go to a wedding and it's someone you've not seen for 20 years and you, you kind of catch up with them. It's sort of that relationship. Okay, thanks a lot, Phil, for that one. So I think, uh, yeah, I think you're easing us into the crazy theories. I think there's uh, that one is possible, isn't it? I'm not sure whether the evidence is there, but but Blofeld is hiring both of these people, and yeah, it makes sense that maybe he might uh, 
hire people in the same family. Yeah, I mean, it does It does sort of shed a new light on Spectre's sort of uh, employment policy and where they're actually getting people from. If it is just a, a family, uh, a family-run business for family people, and so, you know, sort of godfather style, I guess. You know that if you keep everything in the family that you can trust it, blood is thicker than water. I mean, yeah, there's no actual evidence at all for this. Uh, but if anyone does find any, you included, Phil, uh, yeah, just let us know. Are you uh, quite sure I can't persuade you to stay the night? When one is in Egypt, one should delve deeply into its treasures. Okay, so we move on now to the next segment, which is uh, my one, which is called Delve Deeply. Now, in this segment, we're going to delve deeply into the treasures of the Bond locations. Basically, a, a brief summary of what has be become of a Bond location and what you can do there if you have the time, money, and inclination. Treat it as a Bradshaw's guide uh, if you watch the Michael Portillo train journey series. The first location we're going to take a look at is Hong Kong. Now, this one is an interesting location in terms of Bond because it's been name-checked quite a number of times in several films, uh, but it's never really taken centre stage. Uh, of course, we get Bond's fake death and subsequent sea burial in You Only Live Twice. That's supposed to be in Hong Kong, uh, but we don't really get a chance to see the city. And also in Die Another Day, Brosnan is seen in front of the uh, the green screen of Victoria Harbour than it never actually filmed there for that particular film. And more recently, the city is part of the backstory for the characters of Silver and Judy Dench's M in Skyfall, both of them previously working in Hong Kong. And uh, also, if you've delved into the wider world of Bond, into the video games, Agent Under Fire is the video game that you can play in which you walk and shoot your way through the pixelated streets of Hong Kong. So uh, if you actually visit Hong Kong, your point of reference as a Bond fan will probably be the man with the golden gun. Firstly, it's that the Bottoms Up Club is probably the one that people would associate most with this particular location. Previously situated on uh, Hankow Road in TST in the Kowloon area of Hong Kong. But unfortunately, you can't visit that location anymore. Uh, it's been completely rebuilt a great view we get in that particular film. We can see the neon signs, but unfortunately, all of them have disappeared now. So uh, that place is uh, is lost to history. Similarly, the RMS Queen Elizabeth, where they've got the secret little base that they take Bond to, that also sunk very quickly after the uh, the filming of uh, The Man with the Golden Gun. Uh, so I'd recommend turning to my guide, my Bradshaw's Peninsula Hotel, is, uh, is still considered one of the best hotels in the world. And that's where we see Bond and Goodnight. And if you decide to stay, you can stay at the hotel uh, if you've got the money. And uh, the Green Rolls Royce will pick you up from the airport. So uh, that's uh, a bit of an experience. And there are some helipads on the roof as well. You can have a, a scenic and rather expensive tour of the city that way. But I'd certainly recommend if you do visit the Peninsula Hotel to, uh, to take a look, uh, turn left. If you come out of the hotel, if you go left, there is uh, a Morton Steakhouse, which uh, has a rather lovely two for one offer on, on spirits. So uh, you can be kind of James Bond looking across the harbour and uh, very reasonably priced vodka martini is, uh, is available to you there. So uh, that certainly would be my recommendation if you decide to go to Hong Kong, you want to check out the Bond locations, get yourself to the Peninsula Hotel, or even though it's not in the film, get yourself to Morton Steakhouse and have a vodka martini.
Thanks for that, Martin. I do love this section because uh, Ian Fleming did write or release a book called uh, Thrilling Cities, which is a sort of collection of articles he did traveling the world for, I think, the Sunday Times, where he was just sort of doing the real jet set lifestyle of James Bond, but just Fleming living it. Uh, it's quite a hilarious series of articles because he pretty much always ends up in a strip club at the end of them. Uh, I've been to Hong Kong myself. I had a massive star spot in the Peninsula Hotel last time I came because I did the afternoon tea thing there. And at a sort of table nearby was none other than Al Pacino. Yeah, I guess that is the uh, the other thing. You can do the afternoon tea at the hotel. I think that's probably a good recommendation there, Adam, although you, unfortunately you probably won't spot Al Pacino there. Oh, yeah. I'm not suggesting that every time you go in, they've just wheeled someone out or like Al Pacino's just doing a season there like it's Vegas or something. Come to the peninsula. Get an afternoon tea. What have I got? Muffins. English muffins. So, returning for season two, we have Kill Branch. Of course, this is your opportunity to get in touch with your questions, suggestions, and theories. Answer my questions quietly, but clearly. Obviously, for many fans, there's there's a sense of disappointment recently when um, Eon announced that um, the release of No Time to Die was going to be pushed back again from April 2021 until October 2021. What do you guys think? Do you think this is perhaps damaging for the reputation of E.ON, or do you think it's understandable given the, the circumstances that we're all living in at the moment? Again, it's odd that they're postponing because it does just say that they just aren't willing to release this film until cinemas are back to as normal as they can. Because just based certainly in the UK on the current lockdown, the date that they had at sort of Easter time, they'd have been pretty much the only thing in cinemas just as they had reopened. And so they would have been the only show in town. Uh, it seems like by moving back to October, they're perhaps risking not being the only show in town because th the problem is they're very close to Mission Impossible 7 in unless that moves now. And so they might be going in direct competition, but seem to be thinking that, um, you know, cinemas might just, thanks to vaccinations, be back to normal-ish at that point. And so they'd sooner do that. They're not like Disney. They don't have multiple blockbusters, um, Eon, to sort of throw at this. If they lose money on this, then they are going to be in dire straits. So I do understand it to a point of view. I still think that someone does need to step up there at some point. And if cinemas do end up opening sort of post-Easter, they do need a product in them. I think what is kind of good is either through not being able to sell it or sort of deciding they'd sooner stick out for cinemas being open is that they're not going straight to streaming at all. They're not going to be on the small screen they are going to hold out for the big screen release. And that, I think, at least is admirable of them. Yeah, I mean, I assume that they can't postpone indefinitely. Do they have to have a date? Because it seems like they're, they're definitely scheduling it for after the vaccine has been rolled out, after we've got past this horrible stage of the pandemic. But they, they, it seems like they have to set a, a month. Yeah, well, I mean, just in terms of marketing costs and like the actual cost of distribution, they do need a date set reasonably far in advance in order to be able to get everything ready to hit that date. OK, thanks, guys. And just to finish off Q-Branch this week, um, a bit more of a sombre note, perhaps, but um, I just wanted to do a really quick tribute to a member of the Bond family who passed away um, recently, um, and that was stunt driver and coordinator Remy Julien, um, who was 90. Now, for many Bond fans and cinema fans, he will be widely regarded um, as one of the great stunt drivers and stunt coordinators to have ever, um, you know, graced the silver screen. He, he was instrumental, particularly in the driving stunts for many popular films. He started on The Italian Job in 1969, 
And he also made his name hugely in the Bond films, most famously with films like A View to a Kill, where he worked um, closely with John Glenn. Um, interestingly enough, uh, Glenn didn't speak a word of French and Remy Julien didn't speak a word of English. So they both communicated how they wanted the stunts to be performed um, using hand signals and um, cartoon drawings um, to be able to show how the stunt would be performed. And, it, and they obviously performed it perfectly. So it's, it's just, it is a bit of a sad note to NQ Branch on this week, but I think it was important to mention, you know, just the contribution that Remy Julien gave to the world of cinema, not just the Bond franchise, but also to so many films that he worked on in his time um, as a stunt driver and stunt coordinator. Yeah, very well said, Phil. And I guess I guess what is really important about what Julien brought to the Bond films is that you look at the car chasers in the films before uh, he came on board in the early 80s. They're kind of straight line chasers which showcase more the gadgets that the cars have. Remy Julien brings a sense of pure driving skill and of classic car chase trickery into, you know, the Citroen chase down the Greek hillside in Fior Eyes Only, or as you say, you know, a view to a kill when the car's getting bits chopped off it and it's still going downstairs and, you know, over bridges and all the rest of it. And so he really does bring a sense of classic, adrenalised, pure driving car stunt work to Bond. Okay, thanks, guys. So that was our Q branch for this week. So as we said before, please do keep um, getting in touch with us on our social media channels. Um, We are always open to your questions, suggestions and theories. Sensible or silly, you can basically send us anything and we will feature it in a future show. Okay, thanks a lot, Phil. So sensible or silly, over to the quiz. What is it this week, Adam? No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! Thank you very much. So I actually, for these guys, did a Christmas quiz over the holidays, which was uh, playing in sort of favourite, sort of uh, lesser known musical cues from Bond films. And I thought that was quite good. So I thought I'd do just a few more for both of you uh, here. All you're going to have to do one at a time is let me know which Bond film this musical clip is from. And of course, play along as uh, you're listening. Uh, Who are we going to start with? Uh, Martin, tell you what, let's start with you. Which film is this music clip from? think that one is you only live twice is correct yep that is the capsule in space from you only live twice uh phil this next one is for you I think that was Moonraker. You think wrong. It's the spy who loved me. It's the journey oh. to the, the journey to a Stromberg's base. So missed out on a point there. Martin, back to you. Which film is this little ditty from? I'm really not sure about this one. Um, I'll guess Diamonds Are Forever. Ah, uh, you're kind of close. It's the man with the golden gun. It's one of the uh, the tunes that plays within Scaramanga's Funhouse, kind of as knickknacks controlling everything. Uh, so, still Martin, one nil ahead. Phil, your chance to equalise. What film's this from? 
I'm going to say on a Majesty's Secret Service, but I don't think it is. Uh, no, it is on a Majesty's Secret Service. You're oh, quite right. Hey. Uh, it's the fight scene on the beach in, uh, in the very opening scene as um, everyone's sort of getting splashed about and gorgeous George's uh, white shirt is getting very see-through. So one more question each. It is one apiece, Martin. Which film is this from? I've got a feeling it's either late Roger or Dalton. Yeah, I'm really struggling. I'll go Living Daylights. You were one film out. It was, uh, Phil, I think, knows this one. It was A View to a Kill, because it's the sequence where they're fighting on the, uh, which in fact, it's the fire truck, isn't it, where they're fighting on that? Uh, so, Martin, you finish on one, Phil. Name this film for the win. <laughs> Doctor No? It is Doctor No. Well done. Oh. Yes, it's being pursued by uh, Doctor No's forces on Crab Key. So very good guess, Phil. You win the quiz. And of course, that means you get to play our outro song. I feel like because in honour of our guests for this week, in honour for Alan, I think we should have one of the Roger Moore songs. Let's have it on an all-time high from Rita Coolidge to play us out. OK, congratulations, Phil, on the quiz win. And thanks, everyone, for joining us in today's episode. We'll be back again next week. So uh, in the meantime, do check out our social media pages. Let us know any questions that you have as well that we can discuss in a future Q Branch episode. But that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil. All I wanted was a sweet distraction for an hour or two. Had no intention to do. We've done Funny how it always goes With love when you don't look Be fine But then we're two of a kind We move as one We're an all-time high We'll change all that's gone Amuse me, Mr. Bonds.